0: Hi, this is Lisa Henderson, and I'm your host for Daring Parenting. To find out more about what we do, you can go to our website, daringparenting.com, and hear many of the shows that we've done through the years. And if you've listened to Daring Parenting before, you have heard Dr. Stephen Pries, but I'd still like to introduce him. He is a psychiatrist based in the Atlanta area, very well known, not only around the region, but around the world. He is a terrific speaker and has also done some DVDs as well. In 2000, he was named Psychiatrist of the Year by the Georgia Psychiatric Physicians Association. And not only that, but we have been able to interview Dr. Stephen Pries for going on, I would say... About 25 years now. So, Dr. Prees, it's great to have you back with us again. And I thank you for taking time to do this today.
1: You're welcome. Glad to be here. And I hope I can help.
0: Well, you always do. And I thought about you the minute the pandemic started because my own mental health was in jeopardy. I had planned a trip to South Africa to see my husband. And because of the pandemic, all the flights were stopped going back and forth. So, What I wanted to talk to you about is grief, grief in the time of the pandemic. And it seemed like, you know, when it first started, none of us knew that it was going to last as long as it did. And what I noticed is, at least for my friends and family and me, it was more about activities, we were missing church, we were missing meetings, family get togethers, that sort of thing. And then as time went on, at least I know a number of people who really started to do some intense inner work. So there was just that sort of like initial level of grief. And can you talk a little bit about what that's like? Just even though now, in retrospect, with so many people dead, it doesn't seem as big a deal, but that grief of losing activities and get-togethers is real.
1: Yes, of course. Any Anytime there's a loss or a change, there's grief. There's a process of letting go so that you can adjust and grow past that point in your life and, and make some sort of change about what you're going to do differently. Uh, we know from kubler rosss studies uh, that there are stages of grief, and uh, we also know from further studies that while she was correct about the stages of grief, she wasn't necessarily correct about the order. They can come, as your personality dictates, they can come in any order, and they can, the stages can repeat themselves out of order so that denial, bargaining, anger, uh, and resolution or whatever else can come at different times in different ways and then have to do it all over again. So we know that grief is complex. We know that it's necessary. We know that it's minor when you're talking about having to give up salt for your diet, and it's major uh, when you're talking about having to give up uh, so much that we've had to give up with the restrictions from the pandemic. So it's like sleep. You have to have it, but sometimes it's hard to know why, but you, you have to grieve. It is normal. We don't medicate grief ordinarily. We don't try to treat it to make it go away. We try to enable it and support it because it's normal. It has to happen, and I, I can't save you from grief. I can only help you get through
0: it. And let's say that you and I had talked when this thing first started back in March and my trip was canceled and I was trying to cope with the reality of that, what would you have said to me to help me get through it? Feel your feelings?
1: As best you can. Everybody has a different style of grief. For me, I'm a slow fuse. I've always been a slow fuse, which may make me good in a crisis, but it took me years to get over my parents' death. It just takes me a long time. Uh, I can enable it some, if I watch Old Yeller and listen to country music, uh, you know, I can can try to generate some of the grief that's trying to get through me to the outside and to the people around me so that they know to support me. But I know as a personal style, I seem to fight it. So if you recognize your own personal style, think back of what you did in previous griefs. Previous losses, what was it like for you? How did you handle it? Did it work? And the parts that did work, please do again and try to bring those supports back as much as you can. And of course, when we lose something, uh, especially when it's to death, we've lost part of the support so that you can't use the same support. You have to find a new person to put in your support group or your support network to help you in a way that you didn't before. And that may work uh, or they may fail, bless their hearts. We're all human and some people can do grief better than others and some people can listen better than others. Uh, One of the kindest things you can do for another person is just to hold them while they weep, even if it's just figuratively, just being there. Uh, Even on a Zoom meeting, just hope that the Internet doesn't interrupt and and you, you can wait patiently while somebody finishes their sobbing if need be, uh, and just hear them out. Let, let the process happen. So try to know yourself. I think in retrospect, I would have told you what did you used to do? What worked before? What do you need help with? What are you good at when it comes to grief? And just know your strengths and play upon them and know your weaknesses and get help where you're, where you're not so strong.
0: Well, and I knew you would have good tips like that. And I, I did do some of that. Some of it, I, I developed some new muscles in this pandemic that I, I began to embrace being completely and totally alone, which I had never been. Not, well, let's put it this way. I hadn't been for many, many years, having been married and have children. So it was just my little dog and me, and we got to be close companions. And one of the things that happened, one of my very best friends lost two of her dogs in that when the pandemic first started. So I wasn't able to comfort her or be with her. Then her mother died and she had to split care with her sister, uh, with her father. So all of a sudden, here's one of my dearest friends and I can't hold her while she weeps or be with her to comfort her or anything. So I, I felt very inadequate as a friend. And I think that was the beginning of understanding the limitations that the internet has that phone calls have. So I did send her a note. I've gotten actually kind of back into writing notes to people. It's something we've been doing at church as well is reaching out and calling people and writing Do you think this might be a good time for us to go back to some of the old-fashioned ways we used to communicate and express our feelings with people?
1: Absolutely. Uh, Use the old and the new. Uh, The Zooms work, the texting works, the message on your voicemail works. Everything works. Sending cards that are prepared. Sending cards that are blank inside and you simply generate the message on your own is always appreciated. Sending recordings. People forget that we used to record uh, tapes and send to each other. Uh, That's a wonderful way to communicate. I don't know what we use anymore. I guess you'd have to talk to somebody more technically sophisticated than me. Would you send them a stick? I don't know. (laughs) But uh, something that you have prepared that they can play over and over again because it's dear. That's something you can carry around with you. A message that is wallet-sized or pocket-sized, that they can whip out any pause, prayer that you would like to share with them that they can use while they're at Starbucks if they want to or while they're sitting in the parking lot. And start, Because grief washes over you. It doesn't announce, I'll be there in 30 minutes and so get ready. It just blindsides you. And you suddenly find yourself awash in tears and you have to sometimes excuse yourself and say, I'll be right back. You gather yourself together and of course you you return as soon as possible. But it just hits you. So uh, to have something in your wallet or in your pocket, a little talisman, a rabbit's foot, a picture, a poem that you wrote, something that somebody else wrote that you found significant, everything works. Everything is worth doing. and you never know what will be significant. Some people um, want a picture, but I know what's dear to me is that as I know I have my mother's letter opener, which of course she held in her hand every day, you know, things like that that are be specific and and sentimental for me, but wouldn't matter a twit to anybody else. But you never can tell what is going to work and what will let somebody hang on to as they get through this process, which has to be done. If, if for reasons of emergency, you do need, unfortunately, to have to be medicated in order to get through a trip or something that you can't postpone, all it does is postpone the grief. Once the medicine's gone, you're going to have to grieve. That's why we don't recommend medication for grief. It just forestalls it. I'd rather have grandma be a blubbering mess at granddaddy's funeral while all the supports are around her as much as we can these days, than to give her medication to get her through the funeral so she looks fine. And then six months later, when she's crashing, everybody's gone. So trying to be there in every way you can is a wonderful thing to do. But don't forget the little things out of the past, the old-fashioned things. They're very valuable. YouTube has a plethora of wonderful things that you can play over and over again. if it's songs or, or or music videos uh, that touch your heart and help you.
0: (laughs) What about people that that are not experiencing necessarily full out grief, but during the pandemic, they began to get depressed and maybe even severely depressed. And the things that we would normally do to pull ourselves out of it, be with friends, family, uh, go to the gym, take long walks, travel, all of that is sort of eliminated. At what point is, how do you determine the difference between grief and depression?
1: Well, there's a whole science to that. And recently they tried to set some standards to let you know when it's okay to treat something as a depression and not just as a grief, but it's mostly common sense. You have to function. Can't quit eating, for example. You can't stop going out entirely, at least for a few days, but then you got to get back on your horse and keep going. If you're worried about somebody, use common sense. At some point, enough is enough, and you start encouraging them, please see somebody. At least start with your minister and then maybe move to uh, counseling and then see a psychiatrist if you have to, if you think you're gonna need medication or all the above together. It's common sense. Some people have more reserve than others. They can retreat and be a hermit for two or three weeks and they can be okay and they can come out the other end and they've taken care of themselves. they didn't quit eating. They're still mowing the lawn. They just wanted to be alone. Other people have very little reserve, and it starts affecting them in severe ways. You, you don't just see it and they're not taking care of themselves. You see it in the loss of their function, they're, especially if it matters. They're, they're not eating. They're not keeping up with their hygiene. Maybe they're skipping their medications that they have to be on for other reasons, serious consequences. Common sense says this is not acceptable. You have to at least take care of yourself so you can get through grief and be okay when you come out the other end. Uh, we also know that the worst thing you can do for your memory is get depressed. So it does affect your memory. If you're starting to lose function and you can begin to tell it, it's a that's a flag, you know. So do something different. I know at times during when I was grieving. I made myself do something every weekend. I had a list of uh, men friends that I said, I'm going to keep calling them until somebody's going to do something with me. I just wouldn't be alone at home on the weekends. Of course, I had work during the week, but i made sure that I stayed active during the weekends, no matter how artificial it turned out to have to be for me to generate some kind of activity. And I listened to my own advice and made sure I stayed active. So if you have someone that you know is grieving and they're beginning to fail in in terms of their activities and their self-care in major or in minor or much less major ways, then you start to become more and more insistent about you got to get some help. I'm going to take you. We're not just going to sit and take this. You call other people in. If three or four people in a room, like an intervention, is telling you kindly and lovingly, You're going with. You're coming with us. You know, get your. I've got your code, and come on, we're going. And you just insist, and you take them to get help. Good for you. Three or four people is a good source of uh, counsel. If you've got three or four people all agreeing, this is too much. It's too much. Not only talk to um, the person you're worried about, but talk to their support system and see if they agree with you. So and so is not doing well. You might get a different story. It may be that you're only. They only let you see the worst side, but everybody else can assure you, no, they're getting out, they're still doing okay. Uh, We're watching them and we'll let you know and we'll call you if it gets worse. But use common sense about when it has stopped being just grief and has turned into a depression that has consequences that will last.
0: Well, and even though we're somewhat hamstrung by the pandemic and trying to limit our contact, telehealth has gotten so big and I'm so grateful because you could sit and do an assessment with somebody on Zoom if need be, and maybe even a mini intervention. Yes.
1: We've had Zoom meetings uh, for our church, of course. So you can get dozens of people on a Zoom meeting, uh, but all you need is a handful to have an intervention. If you have that many people saying, you know, enough's enough, uh, then maybe it'll get through to you that this is serious. Plus, they'll feel the support of more than one person
0: that is good too. And I think also if we start to feel a little shaky ourselves, there's no harm in picking up the phone and making an appointment to get an assessment from a mental health professional. Absolutely. I went through two very significant deaths this year. Uh, One of my very best friends died from leukemia. And fortunately, I was able to actually go and say goodbye to her. And I went in with my mask and she kind of motioned me to come hug her. And I was like, it's okay. And I thought, well, heck, she's dying. (laughs) I guess she doesn't need to worry about COVID. (laughs) Yeah, she was at home. So I was very blessed in, in that I got to say goodbye in person with a hug. And she had so, so many friends. And family and everybody wanted to do something so I organized a zoom wake and it was nice and we all got to talk but it's not the same. So when we have a big loss like this. Okay, so we do like a little stopgap measure for zoom, but is it important to try to do a real ritual later when we come out of this pandemic. Everybody's
1: different, and and some people are going to need that, and some people may not. This pandemic has been a surprise. Some loss happens suddenly and catastrophically, and you can't grieve at the moment. You're in the midst of battle or in the midst of a tornado or in the midst of a crash. You and other people have to survive before you can get back to grieving. And so it truncates our grieving process, and it, it delays it it makes it more difficult. So some people are going to have discovered that they got through it and they're ready to adjust and they're ready to get back to what they were doing as best they can. Other people are going to, for reasons that they don't understand, have a longer grieving process and they're going to have to go back and revisit this again and again. I have had to remind people in the past that every time you suffer a loss, You go back and you recapitulate grieving for every other loss you've ever had. It's a reminder. And if you, and I've had people in therapy, suddenly with the loss of their goldfish, uh, weep and cry for weeks because it wasn't a goldfish. Of course, it was that they never grieved over their mom or their dad. But finally, the goldfish was the straw that broke the camel's back. And here comes all this grief pouring out. And you just have to remind them. I know what you suffered was sad, and but it doesn't deserve all this grief. I think you're still grieving over something else that you're not aware of, or if you are aware of that you didn't know that you didn't finish your grieving. So let's wonder about that. Have you had any other losses that maybe you, for reasons of emergency or lack of support system or just youth and unknowing, didn't finish? And with that kind of searching and exploration, you may be able to come up with an answer and help them go back and finish the grieving that they've never finished. So that when they come through this grief, they will be complete and they will be whole again and ready to continue in a whole new and better way.
0: So this kind of takes us back to the thing we were talking about, the depression or, or deep grieving. If it seems out of proportion to, for example... When I found out I couldn't go to South Africa, I wanted to die. I just flat out wanted to die. And I realized this is really not about not being able to see my husband. This is about all of the loss and all of the grief. So it was way out of proportion, the weeping and gnashing of teeth. So I think this is a great thing for us to remember and especially having all this time alone and quiet, and even if people are working at home, it's still a different level of being with ourselves.
1: We've discovered that there are benefits to being alone and getting to know you as a way of getting to know yourself. We didn't plan it this way, but for some people it's turned out to be true. I've also heard from families that are suddenly thrust together as they quarantine together, that they had to get to know themselves better in a whole different and better way. There, there really was some silver lining behind the cloud in many circumstances. So we've learned in different ways about ourselves. One of the things that I've had to also remind people, your story makes me remember, that suicidal ideas are just a symptom. And it can be a way of trying to have some control. Suicide is an idea that says, think of a plan. Don't take no for an answer. Be action-oriented and go forth. And it's only in the destructiveness that suicide is bad. We teach the other parts of suicidal ideation in business courses all day, every day. Um, so it's yeah. only trying to regain control in the, the wrong kind of way that I'm out of here kind of thinking is, as long as you avoid the destructiveness Well, I'm out of here is right. In other words, do something different. Don't just sit and take it anymore. Go get a buddy, go get a friend, go do something different, go jog, go do something. Be action-oriented, don't take no for an answer, be constructive, just don't be destructive in your attempt to have some kind of control. The desperation doesn't warrant that.
0: And that's something else that I've learned from you in the past. People are often very reluctant to say, are you feeling suicidal and what i've learned from you is it's just the opposite can you speak about that for a minute
1: well i've learned that it's better always to make sure and if if suddenly that pops into my mind then i have that's my cue to say no wait a minute you know be confronted admit it like a fault of your own i you know if you were to say it in so many words you know, I hope I'm not overreacting, but surely you're not thinking of hurting yourself. At least get it out there where it can be talked about. Uh, you can explain it away as your overreaction if you want to, but find a way to ask. Don't hem and haw around it. If, you, if they even seem to uh, suggest that that is even part of what they're thinking, confront it right away. It's always easier to fix a problem when it's little than when it's big. So while it's just a niggling thought, and uh, in think in your mind, make sure that it's not a little tiny thought in somebody else's mind as well. Uh, and if they say, oh, no, where'd you get that? And you say, well, it was just me. You know, that's just, I, I was afraid that's what you were think. Blame it on yourself. But you got it out on the table. You figured out a way to, to say, forgive me if I'm wrong, but are you even thinking this? I need to know because if that's the case, we need to get some help. So just find a way to to be open about it as soon as possible.
0: And you are not going to make the person commit suicide by asking them.
1: No, no. There have been enough studies to know that it's better to get it out on the table and discuss it and let the other person. And if they say, yes, I am thinking about it, then you know your concern is valid and you can be more assertive about getting them help. It's when it stays hidden and grows if they think that they said something alluding to being self-destructive and you didn't say anything the worry certainly from a counselor's point of view is that you accidentally said it's okay to think that and it's not Uh, you don't want to accidentally be complicit in enabling destructive thinking because you didn't say something so if they if they even happen to say, well, at least I'm not going to hurt myself, don't greet that with silence every time you say good. I'm glad to hear you said that. Uh, acknowledge positive thoughts always and explore negative thoughts always. Don't well, take a chance.
0: And it also lets the person know you're listening and you care. So <laughs> Dr. Prees is
1: we You're listening at every level and not going to even take a hint.
0: It looks like we're going to have many more months of uh, being careful, staying in our pod, whatever our little pod looks like, hopefully more testing so we can get out and about and travel more. What can we do to maintain good mental health?
1: Common sense, stay active, stay healthy, watch your diet, get some exercise, make sure that you don't bottle up your feelings if you even think something's not right, figure out a way to Google it, uh, explore it. Don't just sit and take it like a hitchhiker in a hailstorm. Try to do something that seems like something's not going right, that you fix something. I used to also teach people that no matter what I do to help you with the conflicts that you're dealing with, you still have to do the basics. You still have to maintain your health, brush your teeth, stay clean, Change the sheets, uh, get your exercise, don't overdo it in your eating or you're certainly not in your drinking and do, do things that we know are good for you. you I, I can't save you from that. No matter how mentally healthy you think you are, you still have to take care of yourself. Keep your weight down, uh, all the things that we know to do. So all, certainly make sure you're doing all that, even if it takes every ounce of your energy to just maintain yourself, then that's what you're supposed to be doing. So that when you come out the other end of it, you're still healthy.
0: And I have one last thought. I thought that was going to be it. But I have one last thought I'd like for you to chime in on. It's about hope and how important it is for us to have hope for the future. The more I read my
1: Bible, the more I'm convinced that the word hope in the Bible is just our, our expression of positive thinking. Be positive. Uh, accept the fruits of the Spirit, of the spirit as in your life. Uh, if there's anything valuable, worthwhile, of noble thinking, a good report, think on these things. Be, be positive. Have hope. Have positive hope. Know that somehow this will end. We'll get through this. Everything will be okay. Take care of yourself and know that, that you have the resources around you if you ask, if need be, to get through this. Know that there is a future. I remember one of my friends talking about the differences in Vietnam. And he got back from Vietnam was talking to his mother about the differences in her experience in World War II and our experience in Vietnam. And she said, we didn't know that we were going to win. You know, so there was a a very lack of hope. At least in Vietnam, we knew that win or lose, we could get out of there and let it go. In World War II, People didn't know. So hope makes a big difference. If you know we're going to get through this and sometimes you have hope on purpose, you just insist, I am going to think we are going to get through this. I'm not going to take desperation and and, uh, destruction for an answer. This is not going to be the end. This will come out and we will be better for it somehow. And so have hope on purpose with purpose to help not only yourself, but to help others.
0: Thank you. That, what a great way to wrap up today because I think we do need to maintain that hope. Yes, this too shall pass. And one day it'll be yes. a story. Our
1: mothers were correct. This too shall pass. And we <laughs> will talk about the pandemic the way that our parents talked about the Great Depression. Have hope. We'll get through this.
0: And goodwill come out of it and has for many of us.
1: Yes, absolutely.
0: Thank you so much, Dr. Pries. It's been an honor, as always, to have you on.
1: My honor, and thank you very much for the opportunity. I hope this helps somebody.
0: Thanks for joining us today for Daring Parenting. My name is Lisa Smith-Henderson, and if you're interested in learning more about Daring Parenting and hearing some of the other podcasts and radio shows, just go to daringparenting.com, and you can check out our Facebook page, Daring Parenting, and like us there.